Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's the only joke that I ever remember. What did the zero say to the eight? Nice belt. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from poet Mattia Harvey that'll help break the ice. Her new collection, If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You?, is out now. Later, we'll speak with Saturday Night Live vet Bill Hader. He stars in the new movie, The Skeleton Twins. Although, really, all skeletons kind of look like twins. Well, not people in dog skeletons. I didn't say they're identical twins. Uh, also coming up, fashion godmother Betty Halbreich tells us which article of clothing she'd like to burn, and we learn about Bill Cosby pre-Jello. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Vikings announced star running back Adrian Peterson will be removed from the team. President Barack Obama reaffirmed Wednesday that he does not intend to send troops to Iraq. It's been a long day of voting here in Scotland. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is contributing editor at the Paris Review Literary Magazine. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this week? I am interested in talking about smell maps, which you may or may not have read about in... (laughs) An earlier edition of the New York Times Metro section. What are smell maps? Smell maps are are done by an artist called Kate McLean, and she Mm. does maps of different cities, and they are exactly what they sound like. She has people go on smell walks and (laughs) map everything they smell in the course of their travels. So they just write it down. Yeah. As a result of this, they're able to get a full picture of what a city smells like. For instance, you know, Edinburgh, because it's full of breweries, is kind of malty, apparently. (laughs) And while people, everyone thinks that Amsterdam is going to smell like weed, in fact, it's canal water, the sugary warmth of waffles, and coffee. Mm. Oh. That's, that's two-thirds good smelling, it sounds like. What's, <laughs> do they have an idea how New York is shaping up? Yeah. Uh, she describes it as a warm, musty smell that comes from the cellar, which, while appropriately unpleasant, is not something I've ever associated with yeah. New York. Yeah. And, and dubious because they admitted to going to the smelliest street in New York, which is... Um, on the Lower East Side, I imagine it's on the Chinatown border on the street with all the fish markets, probably. Oh, right. Yes. Of course. And that, there's nothing warm about that smell. <laughs> let's, just, let's just put it that way. Sadie Stein, thank you so much for the small talk. No. Smell you later. <laughs> and now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our rarely imitated history lesson with booze. That's right. But first, the history part. It's the story of how September 14th became, for some folks, the most important date of the Vietnam era. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. 45 years ago, there was one lottery many Americans didn't want to win. It was held by the U.S. government to determine the order men would be drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. It was supposed to be random and fair. Emphasis on supposed to be. The lottery worked like this. Each date in a calendar year got typed on a piece of paper and put in a little capsule. Then all the capsules were mixed and dumped in a jar. If you were of draft age and the first date pulled from the jar happened to be your birthday, you were part of the first group in line to be drafted, Group 001. 
On December 1, 1969, millions watched on TV as Congressman Alexander Perney drew the first date. September 14th. September 14, 001. April 24. April 24 is 002. It seemed random enough, but soon statisticians noticed something weird. November and December birth dates were way more likely to be picked early, meaning guys with those birthdays were way more likely to get drafted. December 30. Zero, zero, three. Apparently, the capsules just hadn't been mixed up enough, so December and November dates, which were put in last, ended up toward the top of the jar and got picked early. The government made later draft lotteries way more random. For one thing, the capsules were spun in big rotating drums, so they'd be thoroughly mixed. Of course, some guys opted not to take any chances. By some accounts, tens of thousands left the country to avoid the draft. In 1971 and 72, Canada took more immigrants from America than from any other nation. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to pair along with it. I'm joined by Eddie Kim. He is a bartender at Pop Sea Bar in Washington D.C. Where the whole draft lottery thing went down, Eddie. Thanks for joining us. You heard the history. What cocktail did this inspire you to make? Well, after hearing the story, I wanted to make a drink based off of the Ricky, which is DC's official cocktail、um, that uses gin or bourbon, lime juice, and fresh soda water. And so, why did, why is the Ricky DC's cocktail? Well, the Ricky is named after Colonel Ricky, who never actually served in the army.、Uh, mm. He was a lobbyist. Who、uh, I believe the story goes, he was a, frequently a source for reporters in the area, and、ah. would always require the, the reporters to, you know, have a drink before he would start talking to them, and it would be the Ricky. <laughs> so it's that kind of DC cocktail. I, I thought it might be the type of cocktail that takes 50 years to plan and runs over budget. And, <laughs> of course, but, it, but it's a lobbyist cocktail, so things got done. <laughs> Also, it reminded me of a story that my friend's father told me during high school about how one of his relatives was able to dodge a draft by imbibing a large amount of soy sauce. How does that work?、Uh, my guess it just raises the cholesterol and、um, the blood pressure because you're imbibing such a high amount of salt. So I thought, well, how would I make a, at least a more palatable version of that? Okay, so let's hear it. We start off with Green Hat Gin, which is a locally made、uh, gin that has a very strong celery seed flavor. Okay.、Uh, we also add Gordy's pickle brine, which is a sweet pickle brine、um, from a local、uh, pickle producer.、Mm. Of course, the requisite lime juice, and we top it off with a little bit of Anderson Valley Goes, a German-style beer with salt water. And to make this a true draft drink, you shouldn't mix it up at all. You should just have those elements on the top improperly right, mixed. Exactly. <laughs> And Rico, it's true. DC named the Ricky its official drink back in 2011, joining New Orleans, the official drink of which is, of course, the Sazerac. Ah, the classic. That's right. And, and folks, if you want to choose an official drink of your own, maybe to toast a veteran, should you have one in your life, we've got a plethora of recipes on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made small talk, mixed a drink. Now it's time for some music to play. And here with suggestions is MC Taylor, along with Scott Hirsch. He played in the band The Court and Spark. Together, they're now the country rock duo His Golden Messenger. 
Earlier this month, they released their fifth album. It's called Lateness of Dancers. They are currently on tour. Here's MC to DJ your next gathering. Hey there. This is MC Taylor of His Golden Messenger, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. The first song that I would play is uh, Gal Costa's India from her album of the same name. It came out in 1973. India is a very elegant, romantic kind of record, sort of smoky, that really appeals to me. You know, one part of it is that you know, she's singing in a different language. In a way that forces me to pay more attention to the arrangement and the instrumentation, that the arrangement of this particular song is incredibly lush. There's a lot of strings. I mean, I've always been attracted to stuff like Duke Ellington that is not necessarily classical, but obviously trained and very complex. Something that people should know, and the people that know me already know this, is that, you know, I'm kind of an introverted person, and I'm not um, ashamed of that. So, um, so when I think about soundtracking a party, I'm thinking about playing music for a very small group of people in an intimate setting. It's a party with people that I'm very close with that are okay with being quiet. <laughs> So at this point, at this party, maybe the kids have been put to bed and we're in the gloaming. And this is a good time to get into a little Phyllis Dillon. The sound of your footsteps telling me that you're near. Phyllis Dillon is one of the great vocalists of Jamaican rock steady music, at least to my ears. We're listening to a tune called Midnight Confessions. In my midnight confessions, when I tell the world that I I love everything about this tune. I love the production of it. It was made by Duke Reed. I love the kind of stepping rhythm that was a precursor to what we think of as reggae music now. And um, I love the slow tempo that it doesn't feel slow. Phyllis Dillon's music is music that my wife Abby and I have listened to a lot over the years, and it's always something that we put on at a gathering of friends. This last song that I would play is kind of an important one for this party. It's a tune called Only You Know by Dion DiMucci from his album Born to Be With You. Dion is known for being the front boy for Dion and the Belmonts and had huge hits with The Wanderer and A Teenager in Love. But he sort of battled a heroin addiction when he wasn't making hit records throughout the 60s and kind of reinvented himself and made this record in 1975 with Phil Spector that he disowns as funeral music. 
But to me, this is one of the most deeply moving and personal records. His singing is just otherworldly. I want to see something that you There's a certain lushness to this recording that suits a late-night gathering of people. Also, honestly, anyone who has even a passing knowledge of who Dion is, it's fun to surprise them with this recording. If I were forced to play some of my own music at this dinner party. I think I would probably play a tune called Mahogany Dread. Well, I can't go back, I know that now. But who said I wanted to? To me, Mahogany Dread is one of the lyrical linchpins of this album. There's a line in the song that goes, the misery of love is a funny thing. The more it hurts, the more you think you can stand a little pain. <laughs> I don't know. It's not really a party song. I mean, I don't know. There's a certain groove to it. Maybe the rhythm of a Hiskold Messenger song is kind of like the Trojan horse. You hide the lyrical medicine in the bass and drum parts. By the misery of love is a funny thing. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of MC Taylor of the band Hiss Golden Messenger. They're on tour now in support of their new album, Lateness of Dancers. All right, coming up, comedian Bill Hader tells us about the wild parties of his youth. I got a VHS of Aguirre Wrath of God, and I got my mom's cappuccino machine. That man is out of control. <laughs> Bill and more when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, novelist Marlon James evokes Bob Marley. But first, let us meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Bill Hader. He spent eight seasons on Saturday Night Live where he did ace impersonations and invented the character Stefan. Weekend updates, flamboyant nightlife correspondent. Of course. Hard to forget. He's also appeared in a slew of hit comedy films, including Superbad. This month, he makes his dramatic debut in The Skeleton Twins. His character is Milo, a gay, depressed, wannabe actor who visits his twin sister, played by Kristen Wiig, in their hometown. Here's a clip. Hello. Where were you this morning? Uh, well, Kevin had a friend, and last night I got lucky. Well, you missed work, so not cool. I was a little late, Lance understood. You have to get your shit together, Milo. That is a very interesting statement coming from you. You know what? What? <sighs> wow. In addition to acting, Bill's known for being a cinephile. When we met, I asked him how he'd describe the movie. I would say it reminds me of the great films from the 70s, you know, where it's like a character drama, 
shows very complex people, but it doesn't really judge them. You know, movies like Five Easy Pieces comes to mind where you're kind of watching this Jack Nicholson's character and then you're slowly kind of unpeeling layers to him and kind of realizing what kind of person he is. But at the same time, like Five Easy Pieces, it's kind of a weird crowd pleaser. So on the one hand, this movie is a shift for you from comedy, which you were famous for on Saturday Night Live and in Judd Apatow films and other things, to drama, but it sounds like you're kind of a student of drama. Well, I loved, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I always wanted to be a director. That was kind of the thing, you know. I uh, would watch, you know, you would notice the same guy who did E.T. also did Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. And they actually, the first one was the guy who did Animal House did Trading Places. And I went, that John Landis, okay. And then, well, he did American Werewolf in London. That's the same name at the end. And so I would go to video stores as a kid, and I would just, my eye would immediately go to who directed it. Your eye didn't immediately go to, like, Star 80 and those video boxes yeah. with the very attractive people? Oh, I would look at Star 80 and immediately go down to Bob Fosse directed it. Okay, what else did he do? Oh, he did all that jazz. I love that movie. You really were a cinema nerd, then. Yeah, big big cinema nerd. And so I would go through, I just wanted to be a director. And then what ended up happening was making films. I found I, I didn't have this patience for it. And a lot of people were telling me that, you know, you should try acting. <laughs> this was about 2004 when I decided like, okay, I'm going to start taking improv classes and get up on stage. So when you accept a role in this movie or other movies, do you immediately think of other performances? And, and do you watch other films while you're prepping for a role like this? No. I, you know, what I actually do is I think of people in my life. And, you know, Craig Johnson, the director and co-writer, he sat and walked me around the block and told me my character's whole backstory. And then you, you get on set and you're just immediately just you have all this kind of information and now you're just reacting to people yeah. you know in the moment you just react to what the other performer is doing well it sounds like you had a lot of background but I, I think what's kind of remarkable about this performance is kind of the shift in your body language the character's countenance the way he he moves how did you arrive at, at milo and the physical part of his performance to be honest i didn't think about it that much you just you do it at saturday night live a little bit but in, in this it was going much deeper but I don't know, you just project a vision of somebody <laughs> and then you just try to fix that. That's probably why I don't like watching myself because in my head I have this vision of what the, the character is and then I watch it and I go, oh, it's just me with my dumb eyes and my weird voice and I just go, ugh, and I get, I get bummed out. Well, while I was preparing for this, I came across your performance on uh, James Franco's roast <laughs> as the president of Hollywood, which was absolutely hysterical. You're the president of Hollywood. You're this old executive in a tracksuit who's kind of telling everyone why you gave them their careers from Jonah Hill to Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen. <laughs> You're welcome, you Harry Canuck. <laughs> you are welcome. I, Hollywood, made the world accept you. I put you on a movie poster and I said, deal with it. Uh, but at one point, you mock Bill Hader. And where's Bill Hader? Uh, where's that guy? Bill's okay in the movies if you need a best friend's best friend to ask an exposition question. So, you're going to follow her to Hawaii? Yes, Bill. Now, off for the rest of the movie. Did you write that line? And, and, and were you feeling that way at some point with kind of the roles you were being offered? I did write that line. But uh, it was more of just my, the, I felt the perception of me from people, which isn't wrong. I usually am the guy. I always say I'm the guy who says the title of the movie. 
Maybe you should forget Sarah Marshall. You know, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always the guy saying the title of the movie, which isn't bad. Uh, the reason I did a character in that was because I'm not comfortable doing stand-up. I've never been a stand-up comedian. I much prefer to play a character. And then it was a nice thing because I got to go after myself and nail myself, you know, and that line got a big, big laugh. So we have two standard questions on our show. The first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, will there be a Stefan movie? People, they crave it. They want yeah, it. People want it. And I'm always saying it was barely a sketch. It lives on update. We tried to do Stefan as a sketch and it didn't work. And so I don't think a movie would work. Right. No Stefan the movie. Um, second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be a personal piece of information that you haven't shared in an interview or it could just be like an interesting piece of trivia um i went to football camp as an adult yeah wait really no when i was in high school uh no when i was in middle school i grew up in tulsa oklahoma and um football is a very big deal in oklahoma and i was inordinately tall for my age and broad-shouldered and i think people were telling my dad like you better get on that bill come on my dad's name is Bill, too. So I, hey, you better get on your son. He's big. You know, get him out there. Get him playing football. And so I went to football camp. How'd that work out? Uh, I was like, you guys want to watch Rosemary's Baby? <laughs> uh, you got, I got a VHS of Aguirre, Wrath of God, and I got my mom's cappuccino machine. You guys want to eat some biscotti? And then they just clobbered you. Yeah, they were just like, what'd you say? Like, that's why I had a hard time watching the show uh, Friday Night Lights, because I was always waiting for Kyle Chandler just to look right in the camera and be like, Hater, run some hills. It, it rattled you inside. It rattled me. Him saying, guys saying football like that, literally, I feel like it, it, it's like my heart stops for a second. I'm just like, what, what, what? I just kind of just like, look around like I'm about to be punched. Bill Hader, his new film, The Skeleton Twins, just opened. And Rico, last year, Bill put together a list of 200 essential movies every comedy writer should see. Right. And it's on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. That's a lot of films. <laughs> it's something like two solid weeks of movies. Because I guess people are going to need to break that up with podcast listening. Oh. Fortunately, they can find all of our past episodes on the same site. Perfect. Nice. to eavesdrop. Jamaican-born writer Marlon James' last novel was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His latest follows fictional characters who get involved in a real event, the attempted shooting of reggae superstar Bob Marley in 1976 Jamaica. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, my name is Marlon James, and my most recent novel is A Brief History of Seven Killings. There's a whole universe of characters who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And one of those characters is Nina Burgess. Before the shooting, she's unemployed and she's stalking Marley outside his gate, hoping to beg him to help her. She's now remembering the first time she met him. Danny was from Brooklyn a blonde-haired man who came down to the research for his degree in agricultural science. Who knew that the one thing Jamaica created that was the envy of science was a cow? Anyway, we were seeing each other. Danny would listen to really weird music, just noise, 
the Eagles and the Rolling Stones and too many black people who should just stop acting white. But at night, he would play a song. We broke up almost four years ago, but every time I look out the window, I sing two lines over and over. Oh, I do believe if you don't like things you leave for some place you've never gone before. Funny. It is because of Danny that I met him. Some party that the record label had all the way up in the hills. Somebody whom I never thought I would meet. Even my mother liked his last single, though my father despised them. He was shorter than I expected, and me, him, and his manager were the only black people that were not asking if we would like our drinks freshened up. Standing there, he was like a black lion, and he was looking straight at me. He said, How did sexy daughter just come upon the man so? Fifteen years of schooling on how to talk proper, and that is still the sweetest thing I've ever heard come out of a man's mouth. I didn't see him again until long after Danny went back, and I followed my sister Kimmy to a party at his house. He didn't forget me. You is Kimmy's sister, he said. Is where you was hiding. Or you was like sleeping beauty, eh? Waiting for the man to wake you up. The whole time, I am spitting too. The part of me that I like to shut off after morning coffee said, yes, reason with me, my sexy brethren. The other part going, what do you think you're doing with this lice infested rasta? Kimmy left after a while. I stayed. I was watching him, me, and the moon when he went out to the veranda, naked like some night spirit, with a knife to peel an apple. Only two people know that Midnight Ravers is about me. So I'm across the road, waiting at the bus stop, but so far, I've let two pass, then a third. He hasn't come through the front door, not once, not for me to run across the road that instant and shout, remember me? Long time no see. I need your help. Marlon James, reading from his novel A Brief History of Seven Killings, It's out October 2nd, that passage was edited for time, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Brendan, especially in big cities, of course, it can be tough to get a last-minute reservation at a popular restaurant. Last-minute reservations are tough, yes. So there are some online services now that will get you those reservations, but for the most in-demand seatings, they charge a fee. It's like 20 dollars hmm. So one of these services recently launched in L.A. It's called Table 8. And among the restaurants participating is Bestia, which is a great Italian joint that is known as maybe the hardest reservation to get in town, period. I thought it'd be a great excuse to talk to the general manager, Daniel Flores, about how reservations work at such a busy place. I first asked how many people a day ask to get a seat. 
not as many people are asking as I would like. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be as busy as we are. But there's times where we could fit more people. And I think sometimes people think that we are fully booked when we might have some seats available. Really? So how does that work? I mean, the, the reputation of the restaurant is that it's impossible to get a seat. Well, online, reservations are booked a couple months in advance. But if you call the restaurant, there's often times that we can sneak people in. Uh, we also utilize table eight. We're able to get people in that way as well. First of all, let me talk about the first thing that you're saying there. Sure. So in general, calling the restaurant is maybe a better idea than trying to book online. Why is that? Well, online, everyone is trying to get 8 p.m. on Saturday night. And when they put that in, that's not available. And it's not. But if you call the restaurant, we're going to say the same thing. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a table for four available uh, at 8 p.m. However, I do have a table at 9.30 or I have a table at 6.15. And that's usually the best way to get in. The advantage is that the internet can't say however. Yeah, exactly. I mean, essentially, at a certain point, it turns into a bit of a sales technique. You have to explain people what you do have, and hopefully they will be interested in not coming at 7.30 or 8 o'clock. So that's the big thing, though. The problem is everybody wants to eat at the same time. So you've got, you know, this is a big place. There's a lot of employees. They probably have family and guests that they want to get in here. Then this is Los Angeles, where half of the population is a potential VIP with a huge Twitter following that would be beneficial for you to squeeze in. For those prime seats, how do you prioritize? Well, this is something I, I always try to make clear to people. And, and maybe this is different from a lot of restaurants in L.A., but Chef uh, Ori and Chef Genevieve made it very clear from the beginning of Bestia that they didn't want to give preferential treatment all the tables at Bestia are available to the general public. We might try to move things around or squeeze somebody in at times. But it's like at an extra table or something? Yeah, I mean, or just, you know, we'll often book something and then just start playing Tetris as the night goes on and just try to make it happen. So basically you'll book somebody knowing that there isn't quite enough room, but, you know, you know that eventually something will open up. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a sort of algorithm to seating a restaurant and you understand that you're going to have X amount of people not show up or cancel at the last minute. And, and so there's always a table to be found at some point in the night. And you just, you have to gamble sometimes. The main thing though, is that there are no secret tables being held aside for. <laughs> there's no secret panel that slides away and there's like an entire second restaurant behind that wall there. I mean, sometimes I wish there were. I mean, um, I'll have friends coming in from out of town and they'll want me to get them in. And I say, sure, I'll sneak you in. And basically what that means is, getting them a seat at the bar, you know? Um, if I can seat them at a table, I will, if there's a cancellation or a no-show. That's interesting. So maybe the first rule of getting a table at a prime time is just showing up, like everything in life. Absolutely. I mean, what people don't understand about this restaurant and a lot of restaurants is, if you show up and you're willing to be patient, hang out and grab a drink, and you're in good spirits, you're going to get sat eventually. And most of the time, we're able to seat walk-ins within 20 or 30 minutes. Really? Yeah, I mean, on a busy Friday or Saturday night, there can be waits of up to an hour, but that's not the norm. All right, you mentioned Table 8. Apps like this are causing a lot of conversation in the food world, whether it's cool to basically be adding to what is already, you know, for some people, a good high-quality restaurant is already a little bit of an expensive outing. Now you're going to tag on this to it. What is the benefit, first of all, for you guys being part of this thing? The way that it benefits us is that we're just trying to provide clientele with as many opportunities as they can to come to the restaurant. If you don't want to sit on hold and try to call the restaurant, then maybe this service 
works better for you. The thing that I hear the most about Bestia, besides how amazing the food is, <laughs> plug, plug, is that it's impossible to get into. And we really want to change that perception. Isn't that a good perception, though? At the beginning, you know, you definitely want to have that mystique. But once I think you've proven to everyone that you can live up to the hype, you want people to be able to keep coming back. I mean, we're not interested in being the hot restaurant for two or three years. Everyone here is committed to being an institution in this city for as long as we possibly can. And for that, you need regulars who can actually get into the restaurant. But I want to actually push back a little bit against something you said. If you've got some of these prime seats available on table eight, doesn't that mean those are now not available to a lot of potential regulars? It's a very small number of reservations that are available through table eight. It's just another avenue for another type of client to be able to get into the restaurant. Uh, have you ever just made a mistake and you've got a line of people down the street that can't get in that thought they could and they're <laughs> throwing stones through the windows? Or... I don't want to jinx myself, but I wouldn't be very good at my job if that happened. Daniel Flores, general manager of the L.A. restaurant Bestia. Well worth hanging out for half an hour or two dine there. All right, but folks, there's way less of a wait to hear the rest of our show. In just a minute, fashion legend Betty Halbreich answers your etiquette questions. This is The Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Happy to have you with us. In a few minutes, Bill Cosby's biographer Mark Whitaker tells us about the time that comedy legend threw a concert and nobody came. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time is Betty Halbreich. She's the legendary personal shopper at New York's department store Bergdorf Goodman, which means she helps the likes of Merle Streep select their looks. She left her stamp on pop culture when she collaborated on dressing the cast of Sex and the City. Mm. Her appearance in last year's documentary Scatter My Ashes at Bergdorf brought her to wide attention outside the store's walls. And now she's released a memoir. It's called I'll Drink to That. It details a life that took some decidedly unglamorous turns. <laughs> and Betty, welcome. Thank you. The unglamorous medium of radio. <laughs> yes. I love radio. Well, that's good because we feel like we didn't dress well today. You don't have to. No one can see you, for God's sake. it's wonderful. We're lucky. <laughs> so you, you don't like the term. We just use the term personal shopper. You're not such a fan of it. Why not? I'm not a fan of being a legendary either. <laughs> it's like a wizard. Well, I also refer to myself really as clerk hmm. because yeah. no matter what I do, and I do it every day, five days a week, all year, I still am clerking. All these fancy titles don't seem to suit me very well. In, in the book, you also explain that you view your job as kind of a creative endeavor. I hope so. And that personal shopper doesn't capture that. So tell me about that. What is what is where's the creative the... part? Is when somebody takes their clothes off and you have to start all over again, isn't it? <laughs> it's like building a monument, a piece of sculpture. Very often, yeah, an obese one sometimes, <laughs> uh, a rather thin one sometimes. All shapes and sizes. I've created that, and mm. that's the only thing that sort of kept my sanity. Mm. Otherwise, uh, it really would be extremely boring I, to, to play with women all day long <laughs> and hear their stories and why and a bit of whining that's attached to it. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that you say it helped you maintain your sanity. Before you started your career, 
helping people dress. You lived a lot like your clientele. You you grew up in a well-to-do family. Your husband was very successful. Mm -hmm. But then because of his infidelities, your life kind of unraveled for a while. You suffered very deep depression. And you talk about how this job helped buoy your spirits. How so? From the day I walked into that store, it was like walking into heaven. I was scared to death. I'd never worked in my life, but there was something insular about it. It sort of wrapped me up in a cocoon, and I utilized that. I began in a very menial sort of way. But after dealing with other women, I began to feel a little more grown up. Because you saw that other people had, you know, problems as well, maybe? Oh, everybody has problems. I don't care who you are. <laughs> everybody has problems. It's just how they handle them. Well, you talk about the therapeutic value of work itself, Absolutely. of having a place to go. Absolutely. That office is my safety harbor. Yeah. Uh, I have to admit to you, I didn't feel so well today. Mm. And I thought, if we could do this in the office, I feel much safer. Mm. I think this is a throwback to all the insecurities. Because if if someone else were in this room that knew me, they'd never believe what I'm telling you. Mm. Because everyone thinks I'm the most secure, strong, (laughs) 86-year-old lady with her own teeth that they ever knew. (laughs) And I feel bad because your office, I understand, has a view of Central Park, and you just have a view of me. So, sorry yeah. about that. I, I think you're divine. <laughs> oh, well, thank oh, you very wow. much. See, look at how he, how's he going to come back with this one. How often do you lie to your clients? <laughs> no, that I don't do. I'm brutally honest. Well, that is your reputation, and that's why we brought you here. We hope you can give some honest advice to our listeners who sent in their etiquette questions. We told them that you would be here to answer them. Are you ready for these? Yes. All right. This first one comes from Leanne in Warsaw, Indiana. And Leanne writes, I do not like to shop. I prefer to get in, get the merchandise, pay and go. However, clerks are now trained to be chatty with customers. Is there a polite way to hurry up a transaction without seeming rude or churlish? Why can't you be rude or churlish? (laughs) And I know where Wausau is because I'm from Chicago. (laughs) Oh, that's right. You're also Midwest. She lives in my territory. I think just a smile and say, thank you, I have to go now will suffice for anything. I think you have to have some sort of a very strong attitude. Mm. Now, I'm not anti-salesperson, mm-hmm. but Obviously. I I do see some and how they work. And what she has to understand is they're generally on a commission. Yes. So yeah. they really have dollar signs in their eyes. And she's got to learn how to handle this yeah. and just be kind, not abrupt, but quick. Because it's quick also not like a classic human interaction. It is a salesperson. It's and, just, you're well, not going to have dinner with them. That's right. Or sleep with them. <laughs> well, It's interesting, though, coming from you, though, because I, probably at this point, I'm sure part of what people are paying for is your time, because you are somebody that they want to hang out with and talk to. Too much, though. So you have the opposite problem. You want the customers to shut up. If I told you how many people I can take in a day, you'd absolutely faint. I'm supposed to have someone on the hour and every hour. They can spend the day. It goes from breakfast, have a little lunch. And then I say, I really have to go home now and I haven't consummated a sale. Meryl, it's enough already. Yeah, (laughs) I remember I I read a profile, I think the New Yorker profile of you, and, and one of your clients wanted to go to the shoe department and you said, no, not the candy 
candy store today. No, like exactly. we'll, we'll get lost there. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. They keep winding their way around Manola Blahnik, and I can never get out of the shoe department. All right. Well, Leanne, there you go. Be rude and churlish, and they'll understand. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. All right. It's your it's your life. Mm-hmm. Here's something from David in Fort Collins, Colorado. David writes, "My wife frequently complains vigorously when women wear leggings or tights as pants." I, for one, rather enjoy seeing women wearing a nice pair of black tights, but of course I maintain my discretion. Good for you, David. Until now. Yes, except for national radio. For the record, is it appropriate for women to wear revealing black tights in public when not at yoga class or jogging? This is one of my big anger points. I can't tell you how I'm obsessed with burning them. (laughs) I can't stand them. I abhor them. Why is that? Well, if you all have eyes, do you see who's wearing them generally? (laughs) I mean... All right, beyond beyond like whether or not your body maybe... Beyond that part, it's just it seems like this is exercise clothing. This isn't for public... It's rude to go out in the world. No, 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 no. But the designers are doing these clothes now. They took them from the workout place. All right. These are supposedly acceptable clothes. So they're complicit. They can be $1,000 for a pair of those in leather. (laughs) <laughs> they still make you broad as a Cadillac. All right. So there, there's your answer, David. This next question comes from Anne in Minneapolis. And Anne writes, I would love to wear hats, but I don't know when and where it's appropriate to do so. Do ladies remove their hats when indoors, such as at work or in a restaurant? I remember wearing a hat to church when I was a child, and we didn't remove them then. You can wear a hat whenever you like. I mean, the fedoras become the big women's hat of mm. choice lately, yeah. and I don't see anyone removing them in the store or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't see – I see them at dinner if you're comfortable that way. Mm-hmm. In Minneapolis in the winter, and I know Minneapolis very well. My daughter lived there. Uh, uh, mm. I would suggest she wear a hat. It's <laughs> yeah. cold. Yes. It's brutal. And she can wear one across her face as well. Because it's, <laughs> it's brutal. Ski mask. There. You're going to need a fedora for each ear. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and your hands. All right. Betty Halbright, thanks so much for coming by and telling our audience how to behave and telling us about your book. Thank you. It's been a it was truly a blessing. <laughs> Betty Halbreich, her new memoir is called I'll Drink to That, A Life in Style with a Twist. And if you thought black tights were okay, who knows what else you're doing wrong. Man. But fear not, we're here for you. <laughs> Send us your etiquette inquiries and we'll find someone nominally qualified to answer them. Hmm. You can reach us at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Or call our hotline, a.k.a. the phone at our associate producer's cubicle. It is 213-621-3470. And now, time for Chattering Class, when we are schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. This week, the subject is the comedian Bill Cosby, and our teacher is Mark Whitaker. In his long career as a journalist, he was, among other things, the Washington bureau chief for NBC News and a reporter and editor at Newsweek. His latest book is an authorized biography called Cosby, His Life and Times. And Mark, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. Believe it or not, there are people hearing this show who are not alive when Bill Cosby was in his heyday from the 60s through the 90s. 
for them, can you maybe get across how seismic an impact this guy had on show business? Well, I think what most people remember him for is The Cosby Show, which debuted 30 years ago this week. Oh, my um, God. September 20th, <laughs> 1984. Me? And went on to become the most successful show of the 1980s. It was the number one show in television for five straight years. It revived the sitcom genre. You know, at the time, people thought situation comedies were dead. Uh, it rescued NBC, uh, which was in the cellar among the networks. Sure. And it laid the groundwork for all the great sitcoms that came after it. Roseanne, Seinfeld, Home Improvement, et cetera. Sort of non-joke based and more Yeah, just more natural. of a naturalistic, you know, kind of tell a story and then, and then find a way of making it funny as opposed to just, you know, joke after joke. Sure. But, you know, the impact of that show was so seismic that I think a lot of people forget that before that, Bill Cosby already had been a show business pioneer several times over. Of course. Um, first with his stand-up comedy in the 60s, his comedy albums, which, you know, people of a certain generation grew up on and still remember all those routines. Let's start back in the, in the early 60s. One thing that struck me when he was doing stand-up back then... I had no idea that he started out playing some of the same clubs as Dylan and the other folk stars of the era. He was really kind of a part of that folk scene. Yes. He gets a summer job at a place called the Gaslight Cafe. That's where Dylan hung out. You know, and at the time, the village was where it was happening. I mean, you know, there was kind of, it was the hive of folk singers, jazz pioneers, and you also had this new breed of comedian. Yeah, this is this is what's fascinating to me, actually. That this is an era where there is a lot of angry political comedy going on. Right, right. And he specifically chose not to do angry political well, comedy. Even though as a black man growing up poor in the projects of Philadelphia, he could have easily. Why, why didn't he? Well, the interesting thing is he started out modeling himself after Dick Gregory. His comedy was very barbed, very full of social commentary. And actually, the, that first summer in the Gaslight Cafe, the New York Times does a feature story on him. And they describe him throwing spears, angry spears, at the white audience and, and quote him. Not at him all a saying, racially charged term. Yeah, right. And, and exactly. You know, and uh, he describes himself. He says, compares himself to Dick Gregory. When he saw that in print... He had this epiphany, and he realized, you know, I don't want to be Dick Gregory. I want to have my own distinctive voice. And it was at that point that he really committed to developing a completely different style, not only than Dick Gregory, but than all the other comedians in the village at the time, based less on telling jokes than telling stories and then making them funny. This, now, this often caused him problems, though, with, with black audiences at the time. I'm thinking of after he became a star on the TV show, I Spy. Mm -hmm. There's the story in the book you tell about him playing the Apollo Theater in Harlem, and yeah. basically no one showed up? Yeah, well, Cosby, people had told Cosby, you got to play the Apollo. And he had been sort of arrogant about it. He'd said, you know, come see me at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> but after huh. King is assassinated, he decides he has to go play the Apollo. And his first night, they can't even fill the hall. He asked um, the promoter, a guy named Pete Long, what had happened. He said, you know, in Harlem, this community, you know, they see you on TV playing a spy. You know, they think you work for the man. Um, and specifically because he's also like a sidekick to a white guy, too. It's he's like a sidekick you must be... to, a, to a white guy. And who is this guy? And anyway, so the fact is that Cosby privately was a big supporter of civil rights. He actually had asked that all the proceeds from that concert be donated to Malcolm X's widow. Mm. Um, so he basically said, look, put the word out on the street <laughs> sure. that I'm a real brother. 
And once that word went out to the black community and also his white fans from downtown discovered that he was playing the Apollo, from then on, mm. the house was packed. He had, but always having to kind of prove himself, his, his bona fides kind of to both audiences that he was Yeah, he was. To. But, you know, he stood his ground because he, he got heat from this from the very beginning. Why aren't you being more, more political? And basically, he, his position with his comedy, with, uh, with the character he played on I Spy is he said, look, I'm going to make more of a statement by, first of all, showing people what they have in common rather than their differences. And also making the point that, you know, you don't have to conform to this stereotypical model of either the black comedian and entertainer just shuffling and dancing for a white audience or, you know, kind of being angry at them in order Mm -hmm. to succeed. Do you remember your first time encountering his comedy? I remember it very vividly. And, you know, on some level, I think it's why... I wanted to tackle him as a subject. Um, I was nine years old. My dad was black. My my mom uh, is white. They had divorced when I was six years old. And my father sort of dropped out of our lives. Uh, She got a teaching job at a college in a little town in Massachusetts where there were no other people of color. One day, I'm nine years old, she brings home an album with this uh, handsome young black man just two years younger than my father, joyously riding a go-kart on the cover. (laughs) And it's called Wonderfulness. And there are these hilarious stories of, you know, getting his tonsils out. Well, ain't gonna hurt and everything. No, we're not gonna hurt you. Now, listen, as a matter of fact, listen to me now. When they cut your tonsils out, don't you know, are you ready for the lie? They'll give you all the ice cream in the world you can eat. I mean, I just laughed until I wept, you know, and a time when I needed laughter in my life. But also, I think, you know, and I didn't really think about it that clearly, but in retrospect, here was, you know, a kind of black role model figure in the absence of my father. Mark Whitaker, he wrote the biography Bill Cosby, His Life and Times. It came out this week. Mark and I also talked about The Cosby Show and about Cosby's recent controversial stances on race and responsibility. You can hear the whole conversation at dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the Dinner Party Download for this week, folks. Jackson Muskers, our associate producer. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Engineering help this week came from Jeff Peters. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dinner party dnld and now before we leave you it's time for one for the road a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties ariel pink has been cited by more than one musical guest on this show as a major influence that's right i'm a pretty big fan too he's got a new album of loopy psychedelic pop music due out in november called pom pom here's the advanced single it's called put your number in my phone bon appetit this magic in the Let your face like a mystery left uncovered Talk to me, it's now or never Make believe, I last forever Come for tea, I'll be your neighbor If you want all this and more Put your number in my phone Put your number in my phone I hope to get some time
would tame this gypsy heart But fruits from fresh on wine Your luscious lips entice me to discover I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newton. Is there something burning in here? Or No. I mean, yeah, I threw a few items on a fire. Wow, you finally got rid of them. I guess I thought they slimmed my thighs.